Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's word. All right. Um, And I'll simply add to that, these words, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. So uh, this, this scripture uh, today is telling us about this key moment in the life of Abram, who is behind the faith of Christianity, also Judaism and Islam. This is a key moment uh, in religious history in which he's given a big promise um, about the future of the world, about the, uh, the way God is going to engage with people. And he's going to create a people that are called Israel. And today I want to talk about how we share our faith as a community by looking at the example of Israel. But to open that up, I want to, um, yeah, just kind of put this out there that for me, coming back from this sabbatical, I don't feel um, ready. And I think I've, I've mentioned this to some of you all that this wasn't like this smooth experience for me. I can't necessarily say I did it well. There were good times, but some things didn't go as I hoped. And for me, I discovered that I wasn't in rhythm during that time, and it kind of was a struggle for me. I started thinking about some of the pain and losses I've gone through in ministry and even throughout my life, and was feeling a need to address those, but didn't have the space So here I am saying, I'm still not at my best, but I also believe that we are entering into this vital time as a little church community. I believe that we're in a time that we've kind of waited for for some time. Um, Our neighborhood around here is recovering from a time of transition. Our church has weathered some significant storms in many ways, and God has taught, has taught us who we are. I think our church is a really needed type of church. It's a rare church. I had a layover in Dallas, and, uh, and I met up with Dan Rainbow. I don't know if any of you remember Dan and Jessica. They tended to sit right back over there with their kids. And uh, Dan and I went to a Rangers game together, of course. That's what I do. And, um, and I asked Dan about their, their search for a church, and he said yeah, they'd found one, but they missed this. They were only here with us for a, for a little while uh, while they were kind of in a time of transition. But he just said, it's hard to find a church like Mission. And I think that's, that's really true. I think our church is needed. I think we have a deep sense of our why that we're starting to grasp this idea of being an outpost for people that we want to be here for the sake of people who are wrestling, seeking, um, even running from God. We want to be here in that place. And the truth is that those three descriptors are very apt for just all of God's people of all times and places. Um, We are people who sometimes are seeking God. I think in the Old Testament of like the book of Ezra, you've got um, you've got a somebody who's trying to recapture what God has been saying to his people all along. I think of uh, people who sometimes run from God. There's the book of Jonah where somebody is called by God and is literally running away from what God has called them to do. Um, And then there's those of us who wrestle with God, 
who um, are kind of like Jacob, the, the great patriarch Jacob, who lived this life of just back and forth tension with God. And he was actually renamed Israel. Um, and that, that word, Israel, that name, it's not just a, you know, a random name of a group of people. It actually means they who strive with God. God gave this name to one of the patriarchs that becomes like an identifier for God's people, those who struggle with God. And um, I actually think that as we think about God's people um, and the way that God has worked through them, it's helpful to me as I come out of this sabbatical, I I hope it's helpful or helpful to us as we go into this new year. Um, And I want to walk through that with you. I want to look at what I'm saying, look at the facts about this group of people, Israel. Let's look at the facts, look at the Redeemer, and then make some uh, application for ourselves. So looking at the facts. You heard this evening's scripture that Danielle read. This was short, um, but this is a key development in God's plan. It reveals that his people will be a family, um, that they will multiply in number and they will become a blessing to the whole world. Um, It begins with the selection of Abram, this person that then gets called Abraham with time. But uh, a question we should ask is, why this guy? Why did God talk to this guy? Why did God have anything to say to this guy? Why him? Um, And then we should ask, why them of all the people of Israel? Why that group of people? Why are they so special? Why is so much of the Bible about them? And then we should ask, why us and why me? Why is God working through us? Why do we think we're God's people if we're Christians? Um, Why am I asking these questions about God if I'm asking questions? Why am I even here? We should ask all of these questions. And the answer to Abram is not what you'd expect. And by extension, that's the answer to all those other questions too. I'll tell you what it's not. God did not start talking to him because he was a good man. God did not start talking to him because he was an impressive or moral person. The answer is that God started speaking to him because he wanted to, and he chose to. And Abram's response to God is the most important thing we can see. He opens his hands and receives the promise, though it doesn't make a lot of sense. All people who claim to have the faith of Abraham can only claim so because they have opened their hands to an audacious promise of God and said, if you say so, then it will be. That's what it means to be one of God's people, to open your hands and receive that. Now, of course, for Abram, um, he, to receive this promise, he has to have a lot of kids um, because through his family, all the ethnicities of the ethnos or families of earth are going to be blessed. So he has to have a son, and this immediately becomes a test for him because as he waits and waits for this son to come, he and his wife, their faith starts to waver. And they decide, they kind of take on the role of God themselves. They want to ensure that God's promise is actually going to happen. So they concoct a little plan. And just let me know how this sounds like if, you know, I don't know, a leader of our church were to do this. They decided that Abram is going to sleep with his wife's maidservant. Um, And like, since they hadn't had kids yet, you know, well, you'll sleep with her and then we'll have a kid. And since she belongs to us, that'll be like our kid and it'll work out. 
Um, the astute reader here would pause and go, that sounds a little wrong. Um, that sounds maybe immoral. And uh, that's not really what God had promised. And that's all true. And it doesn't go well at all. In fact, um, it leads to whole tribes of people who hate Israel and the scriptures. And in fact, some of today's conflict in the Middle East, you could trace it back to the ethnic divisions that come from this very moment. It's a mistake that has echoed through the annals of history and still impacts our world. And this is what the godly man does right after he gets the promise from God. Wow. But God remains faithful to his promise and Abram and his wife have a son and they name him Isaac. And Isaac has a couple sons, Esau and Jacob. You may have heard of them, right? And they're always in conflict. Um, and Esau, def you know, despises God's plan for him. Jacob is a liar and a cheat who runs from and ultimately wrestles with God. He's the one who's renamed Israel. Um, but they have all this, this conflict. They're lying to each other. They're deceiving people. Um, and and the, the question I think somebody should ask when reading the book of Genesis is, how is any of this good for the world at all? Like, this is a really a dumb story about idiots. Right? The story kind of sounds like a microcosm of broken humanity rather than a story of hope and redemption. That's how it sounds. I'd have to do a sermon on the entire Old Testament to tell the rest of the tale, but, but you don't have to be too familiar to know it doesn't get a lot better than this. It continues in a similar vein. Israel is called to represent God to the world, but it's not good at its job. I was talking to Josh White. Josh and Julie are reading through their, their chronological Bible, and they're in the prophets. And Josh said, yeah, it's all just like, here's why you're going to be judged. Everything's bad. And it's like, yeah, that's how the middle of the Bible starts to feel. Here's everything you're terrible at and why you're going to be judged. That's, that's yeah, read it. I don't, Jeremiah, Isaiah, like, I don't know. They're not fun or encouraging all the time. Um, Israel's not good at its job. The Bible is like this long narrative of the near unraveling of this people called Israel from their building of idols immediately after their most miraculous deliverance story um, out of Egypt to the promises he gives them to God destroying generations of them before they even enter into the land he promised them because they didn't trust him. Um, they turn from him there and they turn to other gods and they're disciplined and they're defeated and they're sent into exile under Babylon and Syria and later they're ruled by Rome. Why does this happen? Well, there's a few reasons. Sometimes it's the failure of their political leader that impacts other people and makes other nations angry. Sometimes it's the failure of their religious leaders who leads them astray. And sometimes it's just the failure of all of them to be obedient to anything that they are supposed to do. So time and time again, God disciplines them and it's in their recorded history. They're chastised for idolatry, disobedience, immorality, injustice. This is common knowledge. If you own a Bible, all of this is right there in your hand. When you go around telling people to become Christians, you're telling them to join the lineage of these idiots. Like us. And then we Christians believe that God entered into the story. And this is important, right? He incarnates into the flesh. Kids, I haven't talked to you in a while, but you remember why we, what incarnate means? 
what was my memory tool, Claire? In the flesh, because carne means meat. So you can think in the carne asada, and then you <laughs> drop asada, because that means barbecue. But, but God comes in the flesh, into our frailty, into our pain, into our joys. And in Jesus of Nazareth, God not only bore these things, but he lived as we should have lived. He didn't worship other gods. His closest friend, Peter, claimed he never even lied, and he subjected himself to a mistrial and conviction in, in the place of failed and flawed people. Okay, we believe this. Christians believe this. He bore our sins on the cross, and then, this is the crazy part, we believe he rose from the dead, appeared to his disciples, and commanded them to be his witnesses. And he taught them they were the light of the world. They were like a city on a hill, sharing the light with people. Now that's crazy. And, and if it's true, it would be so significant, right? And it would, you'd think it would change everything. And then you read the book of Acts and the letters of Paul, and you have Christians lying and being killed for it. Ananias and Sapphira, they split apart in disagreement from each other. Paul and Barnabas. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, couldn't get along with his friend. And somehow God preserved these stories, and people kept them in the Bible. You can read them. They, it, do you realize how unlikely of a great religious book this is? Like, if you're trying to convince people, right, be like us, you don't give them these stories. You hide that stuff. Like, shred it. They teach destructive heresies. They plunge into immorality. Read the, book of, the, the books of Corinthians. The early church is already in trouble. The New Testament calls the gathering of Jesus' believers, the Israel of God, the continuation of Abraham's promise, but when you just look at the facts, the Old or New Testament, they are not good at being the light to the world. Their leaders fall and fail and the rest of them follow. What is God thinking? What are we doing? Are we fooling ourselves? Are we are, Look, why are we? Maybe we're creating a religion just to get money and gain power because otherwise this is not working. We're not a great example to the world, right? Those are reasonable questions when you just look at the facts. But we're going to look beyond the facts. Look at the Redeemer. When we opened with Genesis 12, where God makes this massive claim to Abraham, um, we, saw, we saw this picture, this blessing that's going to come through his family. And now I want to look at the New Testament, where John, the disciple of Jesus, another, um, makes another incredible and similar claim. This is John 1, 1 through 8, where we read, um, well, there's going to be a word, the word word. Um, when you hear that, that means the logic or wisdom behind all things. It says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. This is before Abraham, right? This is at creation. 
Then John skips way past Abraham down to the time of Jesus. And he said, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So Israel, God's people who are now Jesus' followers, don't always set the perfect example. They don't always represent God well, but we're called to witness, uh, to bless the nations. So how is that going to work? The key, I think, is here in this scripture. We are a little bit like this man that God called to prepare the way for Jesus. We call him John the Baptist. Um, he was predicted in the Old Testament, back when God was talking about it, to, you know, all these promises to Abraham. Um, and he shows up in the New Testament. And like him, we are not the light. But we bear witness about the light. John was probably more of a good example than any of us. And Jesus said there was no one greater than John the Baptist. So if even he doesn't qualify to be the light, then I sure can't qualify to be the light. So it turns out that God's people are not the light. We witness to a light that is not ourselves. Usually in the Bible, it is the sheer grace that Israel receives that testifies to who God is. Actually, I would say all over the Bible. And therefore, um, you know, there's moments like God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. Um, and there's afterward, he explains it. And he actually, in the scriptures, tells the people of Israel, it was not because of you or who you are or your good deeds or anything that I delivered you. It wasn't because of that. Because why? They didn't have them. It wasn't that good. But he tells them it was to show my glory in the mercy that I showed to you and the power that I exhibited through you. So God's goodness to Israel isn't what they deserve to get. They are not the light of the world. It's what they don't deserve and what they receive because of God's mercy. So God is the light exhibited through the story of Israel, not Israel. Now, at the beginning of, of John's gospel says, John the Baptist witnessed to the God that entered into the world who identifies as Jesus. This is what we Christians believe. So what did Jesus say about these things? Well, pretty famously in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, and this is going to feel like a contradiction to me. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand, and it gives light in all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, that sounds like you are supposed to be the light. The things that you do are supposed to testify to Jesus, right? You can hear that and think, well... I messed up this week. Like I could think I had a crummy time on my sabbatical because I'm not as good of a leader as I should be. You could think, 
whatever happened during your week that you know, was wrong or off or whatever means you can't testify about Jesus because your good works aren't good. You should wait until you get yourself together. But that's assuming this says something Jesus didn't say. Jesus did not say, when there's enough good in your life to outweigh the bad, then you're a city on a hill. He didn't say you're a city on a hill until you falter a little bit. All he says is that when people do see the good works that you do, they'll glorify God. He doesn't talk about what the ratio is at all. Why would they give, by the way, glory to God if they thought the good works were because you were a good person? Wouldn't they give glory to you? If they gave glory to God, it would probably because, be because they were aware that these good works were not yours naturally, but were coming from God. So they would glorify God. They would realize these aren't merely natural things. There's a light within you that is not merely you. The light within us that Jesus is referring to is a light that comes from God. It's what happens when someone receives good things from God and begins to be shaped by it. Some of their works start to reflect that. Not the totality of their being. They start to show evidence of what God is doing in their lives. The light isn't merely you. It's God within you, grace forming you. And if you aren't perfect in getting it all right, it doesn't mean that God isn't at work in you. This, though, is why our call, like John the Baptist, is not to claim to be the light, but to point people to Jesus, who is the light. And that is very helpful, and anyone can do it. Um, I mentioned, uh, you know, that my sabbatical wasn't all that I wished it had been, but there, there were some very good moments. Last Sunday, and I was in Pittsburgh. Um, actually, I, I flew back. I thought I'd make it here, but I, I was wrong. Um, but I went, to, I went to a church in Pittsburgh and, and had a really significant moment. And, and I'll tell you what it was. The church was, it was okay. It wasn't like it blew my mind. It wasn't like I found the best church ever. In fact, nobody greeted me at the door. They messed all that up, right? All the things we're working on. Um, good job, Cassie and team up there. They didn't do it. Um, I walked in. I was fine with it, by the way. But um, I walked in and, and I just kind of like had to figure it out and all this stuff. But but they, there was a song they sang, and it just, it just nailed it for me. It just talked about Jesus and how Jesus never lets us down, and how he had been faithful in the past, and he's going to be faithful in the future, and for whatever reason, that is what I needed to hear. Like, it brought me to tears. I'm not even, I was like, I'm glad I didn't meet anybody, because I'm the guy crying with a really big backpack, because I'm on my way to the airport. But um, it, was, it was powerful. That pointer to Jesus was more powerful for me in the two months, I'm telling you, than having a break from preaching or sharing my troubles, which I've done with plenty of people. Um, it was the more powerful thing. And I can sense within me that what I need to do is lean into something that God has already done, but I'm tempted to cease relying on it. 
Like God has been faithful all of these years, but I'm tempted to stop relying on that and try to fix something. Truly, I I want other people to be my light, to treat me right, to diagnose me, to understand me, to fulfill me. And often they will not and cannot. Like who, who of us has enough wisdom to, you know, peer into the soul of another and know what you need? But I want that sometimes. But when we point each other to Jesus, we're pointing to someone who will not fail, to the light. There's a real power in pointing people not to look at us, but to look to Jesus. And we as very imperfect people can always point people to Jesus. Like read the books of Brennan Manning. That's the theme, an imperfect person pointing people to Jesus. Now, I don't mean the cop-out, okay? I know that, you know, someone comes and tells you they're depressed. There's a cop-out where you can say, trust in the Lord, honey, and like, leave. And that is not what I'm saying. That's a way of not really knowing somebody deeply or being involved. I don't mean that. But what I do mean is to offer Jesus in your offering of yourself And also in your imperfect offering to point somebody to Jesus as the ultimate need of their soul. I think that's a believer or an unbeliever. I think when we engage with people who don't know Jesus, we can witness to what he's done in us and point them to it. Not to our perfection, but to what Jesus is doing in us. When we witness to another believer, the same thing goes. Witness to what he has done in me and encourage and pray over them that Jesus would meet their needs. Because what they need at the core is Jesus. See, it makes no sense to, to point somebody, though, to a gracious God when our actions are non-gracious and unkind. This is why all of us need to be seeking the light of Jesus. When you offer what Jesus has offered to you, his goodness and his kindness, then your words about his gracious nature will immediately be illustrated to them. They'll get both. So the facts are we are not the light of the world. Jesus is. And we're called to this as his people to witness to Jesus. And that's the promise to Abraham. And it squares with what Jesus said. The promise is that all the people of the earth are going to be blessed. It clearly doesn't happen through Israel as a people, but it happens through the one who comes through Israel, who is Jesus. We are the light of the world, not because we are so impressive, but because we witness to Jesus and what he has done for us. And this is why all throughout the scriptures, um, we as an entire body are called to witness to Jesus. I want to make application on this and just kind of help you see what I mean. Um, When, you know, Abraham's family is all the people of faith. When Jesus says, you are a city on a hill, he doesn't say you, Joey, or you, Tomet, are the city on the hill. It's all of you. Why is that? Here's why. We're not all up or down at the same time so we can help each other. (laughs) And isn't that nice? I mean, I've been feeling that. I've been feeling that that is a gift. Look, um, one of the most encouraging things to me amidst not feeling at my best 
has been able to be to show up here and see that not everybody is in the same zone. That's a gift. In the last couple months, I've observed a a number of things. You know, John and Mike and Karen and Cruz and Jared, our elders, deacons, those are like the people that we know there's like a role or whatever, right? And, but you all have done the, the work. If I hadn't been here, it would have been fine. Like last week, I wasn't here. It was all great. And that's encouraging to me. But more than that, little things like our meals have gotten way better. Can I just give a shout out to like everybody who's made great meals all on my sabbatical? It's all started, right? But that hospitality is a huge part of our witness because it's words of grace that are spoken and it comes with delicious food. It's powerful. It's hospitable. This is a witness of who Jesus is and how he does things. And it's wonderful to see that done and know like, I might not be doing well, but you all are doing the work. And it's been sweet. I'm here, you know, speaking of Josh White, he's like writing letters to restaurants and stuff and he's going to teach us all how to do it. I mean, like, cool, like, we're getting free food from places. That's amazing. Um, Alpha's coming together, right? We're going to make space for curious people to come and engage with Jesus, to have a safe space where we honor their questions Cruz is walking into more responsibility with that. You all are volunteering for that and other things. You're inviting people. Um, I've observed many of you inviting friends this summer, pursuing relationships with visitors and community members. Look, this church isn't me. Thank goodness. I can, I can have a clunky sabbatical because it's not me. It's us. That's very encouraging. Many of you have been strong as I've felt weak, so we are able to witness to the light. And you'll be down one day, right? Many of you have been. I, I, know, I know you all. We, we get down sometimes, but you're not alone. We're doing this together. That's good news for those of us who are like Israel in the Bible who can't keep it all together. Sometimes we just downright fail, Sometimes we actually do things on purpose that are just wrong. And if it was all on us, and if we were the light, that'd be crushing. But if it's not all on us, we're not in this alone, and Jesus is actually the light, then there's hope. And we can keep taking steps with each other. We aren't doing this alone. Number two application, we do not testify to our success, thank goodness, but to his mercy. And this is kind of the whole sermon, right? I'm just saying it one more time, but I think we need to hear it because it really cannot feel that way. It can feel like we need to witness to the good things that we do. Um, but, but look, let me just get, I'll get practical here. What is countercultural in our day? What would make somebody say, now that's different? In an age of self-promotion, expressive individualism, in an age where we're trying to prove that we are okay, that we're not like the crooked people out there, it is rare to be able to hold intention two things that you are secure in your faith and able to admit your faults. Those two things are difficult to hold intention. You lose your temper at work, you neglect a friendship. Um, the temptation in our culture affirms this that you have to fight for yourself. Whatever the situation going on in there, you need to fight for yourself. You need to get what you need. You need to dump toxic people. You need to crush all claims that anything is wrong with you. Get it out. Deny it. Hide it. 
You can't be the toxic person. Everyone else is. You're fine. That's what you have to do. It's bull. The good news of Christianity is this. We can admit our flaws and failures, even the things we don't mean to do, but do on accident. When somebody says, you, you hurt me, I didn't mean to. It doesn't. We can say, I might have. I probably did. And guess what? Like, you're right. Because the light within us is not us getting it right. It's that we have a gracious God who accepts us so we can take another step on another day. That's what other people are longing for as well. We don't have to play the hide it game. It might, you know, if you're going to be an influencer, well, it might not work for you. But if you're going to be a Christian, we don't play that game. We admit our flaws because we are unconditionally accepted in Christ. That is different. And I think people in our culture, in our city, are longing for something like that to hold those two things together. That allows us to hold our hope and security amidst our failures, admitting the potential sins we commit. And what that does is it exhibits the power and uniqueness of the grace of God, which is the light. And the third thing is we hope, this is practical, in God's promises based on his faithfulness. Now, I mentioned that song that was helpful to me. Um, and it was helpful because it got something theologically right. Um, it's one thing to tell people what they need to do, right? Um, it's another thing to point people to the faithfulness of God. It's one thing to people, tell people what they need to do. It's another thing to point people to the faith, faithfulness of God. Telling people what to do is self-help. Pointing people to the faithfulness of God is an invitation to worship. And worship is what fuels Christian help. Just telling somebody what to do is self-help. Pointing people to the faithfulness of God is inviting them to worship. That fuels Christian help. Worship means to affirm the worth, power, and goodness of God. And it doesn't have to be, you know, in a way that's like too glossy. Um, one of the things that sank in for me, I'll just tell you how it worked with this song. One of the things that sank in for me over sabbatical is that, um, and part of it is I, I did a writing class and I was trying to timeline out my life. And it hit me that like there were very few periods of over a year when I didn't go through something really unearthing in my life. And I, and I hadn't really put that on paper, but I looked at that and just went, holy cow, like every year I get walloped in the face, like for a long time now. And that's hard to deal with, right? But looking at that was, was hard. I think that kind of got to me. So look, this is not my witness to you. In case you were wondering, if, if anybody ever wonders what we teach here at Mission or what I teach, my witness is not that there's a good life on the other side of accepting Jesus. I, I wish I could. But look, I accepted Jesus. I really had a, a big moment when I was 17 years old. And then not too long after that, I went through an utterly disorienting divorce. My best friend died on the way to his wedding with his fiance. My dad died of cancer way too early. This church that I love got almost shattered in the aftermath of COVID. And I am skipping 
dozens of, of items on the list, okay? Um, I've lost friends. It's been hard on my family. This stuff can mess you up. That's part of why I'm still in turmoil. So look, my life is not saying to you, the light I have is not come to Jesus and you will have a nice smooth life. I can't tell you that. It's not my story, right? I'd be lying to you. If that's what you want, I have no idea what to tell you. There's some big church somewhere that'll tell you that and try it out. I don't know. I can't do it. I'd be lying. But what I can do is tell you that in the valleys of the shadow of death that I have experienced, as I timeline those out, that Jesus has never ceased to be God. Amen. Jesus has never ceased to be God. Jesus is not the one who left me. A lot of people have left me. Jesus has never left me. In fact, as the Bible says, he drew near to me when I was brokenhearted, most brokenhearted. That's what I can tell you, because you're going to face that stuff. And our friends and families are going to face that stuff, right? I am consoled and bolstered by the hope that the God of Abraham, Jacob, and John the Baptist is still God. So in my faith, in my failures, sorry, like my failures like Abraham, who goes off and tries to do God's work for him in all the wrong ways, when I wrestle with him like Jacob, who, who has all his own desires that are just like ripping him apart and he's striving with God, even if like John the Baptist, the reward for all my hard work in following Jesus is actually that I become less popular with time and you know, John got imprisoned and his head got cut off as well. If that all happened, which all that's in the Bible too, if that all happens, God has still been God and has been faithful to his promises. His promises are bigger than this life. And that's why we don't see them come to pass perfectly in this life. Our friends out in this community are crushed and confounded. I went out to, uh, to Hoko Fest a little bit, listened to three sets of rap music, and I can tell you these people are crushed. That's the story. That's the story I'm hearing from three rappers on a Saturday night is they're crushed by the troubles of life or they're sedated by the allure of money, power, and respect. But either way, they do not need a witness to how to win at life. They need the light of something that will transcend this breath of a lifetime. They need to see that their maker is God and always has been. They need to know the light that comes from Jesus. They need to encounter him. So Jesus, God in the flesh, um, once sat down with his disciples, right? Right before their whole lives were about to get chaotic. Before he was going to be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And he took the bread off their Passover table, which would have reminded them of their deliverance from Egypt. A point back to, to when God had been faithful to them before, despite their unfaithfulness. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. And what does that mean? It means he's going to bear the impact of their failures, the brokenness of their souls. And he took the wine from the table, which they used to celebrate their greatest feast, but also which those prophets in the Old Testament used to illustrate the judgment and justice of God. He said, this is my blood poured out so that you can be forgiven 
and accepted. Jesus put himself at the center of their worship. And that's what lifts our spirits, is when he is at the center of our worship. And after he rose again, he called us to be his witnesses. So we invite people to Jesus, whether we're weak or we're strong, and it's a team effort empowered by God's faithfulness. I'm going to pray for us. There's going to be a two-minute silence after that. We're going to do a few uh, worship activities here, three things. Um, We are going to uh, take the Lord's Supper together. That's uh, the way that's going to work is during the songs, people are going to line up here and come forward. You do that if you believe in Jesus, even just a little bit. If you can even say just with a little bit of faith, I want to trust him, that's all he needs. And you can come and receive him by faith. But don't do it lightheartedly. This is something that we consider sacred. We, we consider that this is the light of the world. If you're not there, it's totally respectable to sit back. Uh, we're going to put our money together. Um, this is something we do to give in response to God's generosity to us. It's an expression of our worship. Um, look, like, at, at the end of the day, for me, one of the things I want to trust in more than anything else is the money in the bank. Um, I did our budget yesterday. I really want to want to know it's all going to be there. It's a huge act of worship to say to God, you've given me everything. I'm going to give a portion back to you. Um, we believe it's a worship statement. And by the way, it takes care of those who do leadership here in this church and allows us to serve in the community. And we're going to sing together and reflect on the faithfulness of God. Okay? So to start that off, I'm going to pray and leave two minutes of silence for you. That two minutes is time for you to just uh, reflect. Maybe you have a question for God. Maybe you have um, something just to call out to God about. Maybe there's something about just thinking about what it means that he is still God that you need to do within your own soul. This two minutes is for you as we prepare to uh, continue in our worship. So let's pray. Father, I'm uh, grateful to be here with your people, this little group of them. Um, Thank you for this church, for the work that you've done in our lives and our hearts, for the work that you've done um, all throughout the world, throughout the city. Thank you that there are churches um, all over this city worshiping you today and that we could fly anywhere in the country and uh, and find little, little groups of people who worship you, Jesus. You have clearly been extremely faithful even though we are often faithless and we struggle. Your word has continued to enlighten our hearts. Who you are has continued to testify of the goodness and grace of God. So we pray now as we meditate on these things that you would bring that light into our hearts. Not the uh, the light of our own success or our great faith, but the light of who you are and your faithfulness. Console us with it, empower us to tell others what you've done for us, and lead us now as we pray.